Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Trojan fans. Welcome to the Peristyle Podcast on a Tuesday. Don't know if this is considered an emergency podcast, but we had to do one. We had to get Dan Weber in. There were so many questions and, of course, big news on Monday. Uh, you know, the one day I decided to take off and go play some golf, all this stuff breaks loose. So uh, we're going to talk about all that. Sam Darnold being named the starting quarterback. Uh, the first time that USC switched quarterbacks in the middle of the season since Paul Hackett. Uh, back in the Carson Palmer days. So it's been a while since something like this has happened around USC. It's been kind of crazy around the program. We're going to have Dan Weber come in and try to make sense of it. If you have any questions for us, podcast at uscfootball.com. Uh, you can leave a voicemail, too, by calling 641-715-3900, extension 816-646, or go to our website, peristylepodcast.com. Click on the left side of the page. You can leave a voicemail right from your computer or mobile device. Um, lots of stuff going around. If you want to get the show, we're on iTunes, we're on Google Play, we're on Audio Boom, Stitcher Radio, a lot of ways you can uh, consume the show, and you guys have been sending in tons of questions. We're not going to be able to get to anywhere near all of them, but a lot of topics I kind of captured, and we're going to try to go over each and every one of those topics today with our friend Dan Weber. What's up, Dan? How you doing? Oh, uh, pretty good. It's, um, uh, I, I wanted to take off on you talking about an emergency. Uh, I was thinking about what's another way to describe an emergency day at USC. And I was thinking, hmm, I don't know, Monday, Tuesday, <laughs> Friday, Saturday, Sunday. <laughs> I mean, you want to, I guess, is there a, is there somebody called emergencies or us? Um, we're USC football, and emergencies are us. Yeah, I think that's a great way uh, to put it, Dan, because this we've been used to this over the last five or six years covering the team, That and my wife would attest to this, and I'm sure Diane, your wife. I mean, there's always something that happens every month or two that's like, drop everything, holy crap, what's going on? Of course, you know, when you're talking about head coaches being fired midseason, like those are big things, but other big things, too, with – you know, Josh Shaw or the salute to Troy. I mean, there's always something kind of crazy going on, like a drop everything sort of moment. And part of the reason you hire a Clay Helton was to kind of stop the drop everything kind of moments and having, you know, Tim Teslow and the sports information <laughs> director having to field a zillion calls. And, uh, but we're still here. I mean, you know, it's, it's Clay Helton's show and we're still having these kind of moments, Dan, where it's just like everything's going to, it's like hell in a handbasket. Well, you know, you kind of hate to have those days when the ESPN guy is saying, okay, this is going to go to the top of the college football page. <laughs> and, and, you know, as sad as it is, you know, that happened last week. I don't even want to talk about how they got to the top of the college football page last week. And then this week, you know, they get there again. And, uh, you know, maybe it's, it's hard to escape your history. And it might be really hard to change the culture from within the culture. Maybe you, do you have to go outside the culture? I mean, one of the, you know, reasons maybe you go with someone inside the culture who'd been part of that culture is that you really understand what's wrong with the culture. And even if you do and you say the right things, we have to change the culture. We have to go to, in this direction in terms of football. If you really don't have the ability to step outside the culture and make those changes, even if you know and you can say these are the changes that have to be made, and you're also dealing with players who've been inside that culture for the last five years, let's say, for the red shirt seniors, that's not easy to change old habits, to change old ways of thinking. And here you go, you know. Uh, and then you throw that poor team up against the toughest schedule in the nation. 
and a schedule. And we were talking about this on the sideline yesterday at practice. If you put everybody in the Pac-12, except you can't do it with Stanford because they were involved, but if you put the other 10 teams in the Pac-12 and gave them USC schedule, which one is not one and two? And somebody said, well, maybe Washington, maybe they could have upset Stanford or Stanford. Probably not. But basically, USC is where everybody else in the Pac-12 would be um, uh, record-wise. Now, embarrassment-wise, you know, screw-ups-wise, you know, inability to do what you say you're going to do or even look like you are the team that you say you're going to, you know, be, maybe not. But uh, what it says is they still have a chance. Season isn't over. You win, you know, you win Friday, obviously, to do all this on a short week, going to a place where the temperature is going to be 40 degrees colder than it was yesterday and rainy. Uh, you know, that's asking a lot. And going to a place where they are really ready after what USC did to their number three youth last year at the Coliseum, uh, you think they're not going to be ready? And uh, with Stevie Tui Kalavatu, uh, you know, now at USC, uh, this is a real challenge. If USC gets through it, though, you know, who's to say they're not in the same situation they were last year where they do have a team goal of winning the Pac-12 South and getting their act together? Have, are they capable of that? Man, we'll see. But yeah. uh, that's where kind of where we are. Right. And there's a little bit of optimism there from Dan. So let's. So with the, a lot of topics. I want to jump into all these. And like I said, I want to read some of the questions, but I really had to kind of take – main topics main talking points from a lot of the people that wrote in i mean i can't even tell you we really didn't even get a chance to discuss stanford we'll do that a little bit um but then obviously this the, the news comes down um you know sunday night we we kind of get hints of it if you read dan's uh practice report from monday they moved all the practices up this week because the game's on on friday night that uh saying how uh max brown had uh competed um what was it? At, what did he say? Uh, honorably. Honorably, uh, Clay, yeah. Clay talked about it on Sunday. Clay said Max has competed honorably, which was an interesting word, and he used it again on Monday, and now you realize honor, you know, he did it with honor, but, you know, it's like, uh, you know, two guys in a duel, and, you know, they're both honorable men, and one of them, you know, doesn't come away uh, standing. You know, yeah. you can say it was about honor, but... Uh, well, uh, well, let's that, discuss now, that. Now, looking so, back, that was a tip-off. Yeah, that was definitely a tip-off Sunday night on the conference call. And uh, we kind of talked off you know, off the air about that a lot of the fans wanted to see Sam Darnold. Uh, but now that he's named, they're kind of mad. And and I, I'm totally I'm, – I have strong feelings about this. And I do feel that this was a mistake. I don't feel that the offensive woes are because of Max Brown. And a lot of people are asking questions like, did they do it so – Max Brown wouldn't transfer and then just want, but they wanted to name Sam Darnold from the beginning. I think that's a legit question you have to ask. Um, is he really just the scapegoat in all of this? And in my opinion, and I did this on the emergency podcast, I said that once this team starts losing, there's going to be sacrificial lambs because it's not going to be Clay Helton changing what he does. It'll be, they'll change out the quarterback. Maybe they'll demote T. Martin. Um, so I, I do feel he's a scapegoat. A lot of people are kind of writing it about that. Um, and, you know, is this really just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic? People want to know um, because it's it just seems like you're fixing something that, you know, yeah, it could be better. But um, you're, you're, you're changing the I, I think I used the analogy like this, like in your house, you're, you know, uh, the, the the sink's leaking. Um, that's probably why the foundation's busted. If we fix the sink, then everything else will be OK. It's really not the case, in my opinion. But what do you think about all this, Dan? We got your the report, but we haven't got one of your columns yet on what you think about this this change here after three games. Yeah, I mean, I guess the one thing is, if you fix the sink, you won't have water in the kitchen <laughs> right now. You know, <clears throat> then you figure out how do you fix the foundation. Um, is is Max escape? Yeah, probably. Uh, the question is if the foundation hasn't been fixed or can't be fixed fast enough, you're probably still better off fixing the sink and then figuring out, can you, do you know how to fix the foundation? Um, so, 
I'm thinking in some ways they had to do it. It, it. it may not be fair. It may not be right in terms of what, what is happening with Max, because let's face it, they have far more problems at far more places than they had with Max at quarterback. Not even a question about right. that. Sure. Um, and, uh, you know, you look at the offensive line, you look at wide receivers that can't get separation or hold on to the ball in a big play. Uh, you know, you look at running backs, maybe not always hitting the hole. Uh, you know, you look at, you know, four gigantic defensive breakdowns that gave up four touchdowns. Um, all of which, you know, changed the, the nature of the game. And, you know, Max threw a couple of deep balls that, you know, he can't catch them too. And if they catch them, maybe everything changes. So, and yet, going forward, how much better is the offensive line going to play? How much better are the wide receivers going to play based on what we've seen so far? Uh, are you better off in a place like Utah um, Friday night where it's going to be, you know, below 50 and rainy maybe, uh, having another big running back in your backfield? and somebody they've got to account for. And uh, maybe. Uh, and a guy who maybe can make that one throw. I mean, that throw he made to Tyler Petit, that Sam made to Tyler Petit, there are very few guys in the NFL can make that throw. Okay, there might be very few guys in the NFL make that catch coming across, especially with a Stanford guy, you know, riding on your back, uh, uncalled, of course. But, um, but you know, those are – the kinds of plays that he maybe maybe can make. There are other things that, you know, with a redshirt freshman with his first ever start, it's not going to be easy against that team. They've got 15 sacks in three games, I guess. Uh, you know, you could say, well, this is a game, if USC just has a three-touchdown offensive night, doesn't turn the ball over, they can still win uh, against the Utah offense. And, and, and that's a legitimate point. And you are, you know, you're uh, – you're rolling the dice here uh, to make sure, you know, that your your new guy doesn't turn the ball over and give Utah some easy scores that they don't have to earn. Uh, but uh, I think he had, Clay had to do something. And I think if you're Clay, you look at this performance of this offensive line and say, you know, can this team grind the ball out with the mistake, you know, as mistake prone as it is and, you know, uh, and penalty prone, or do they need somebody? I mean, I thought it was interesting. Stanford, uh, David Shaw said that they have had a principal in their offense since I guess he coached with the Raiders when John Gruden was there and they had, um, uh, what's his name? Gannon was the quarterback and they had a principal that he was expected and he wasn't a great, you know, great scrambler or anything, but a pretty good athlete that they expected him to run for three or four first downs a game. And even with Ryan Burns in the game, you know, a kind of a 6'5", 230-pound, kind of, you know, not a real polished quarterback, uh, they expect him to run for three or four first downs a game, and he did against USC. Is that the, you know, the difference that you need to have uh, and by – Going with Darnold, that forces USC to be in a situation where, in a, in a mindset where they have to block the run better. They have to get some run production out of their quarterback. And they maybe have to get somebody that makes an explosive big play that they didn't even, you know, that's not in the playbook, that's not drawn up. Uh, and that he just kind of Brett Favre's it, you know, down the field. Uh, you know, and Brett Favre quarterbacks win you a lot of games maybe that you uh, don't expect always to win and they probably lose you games you don't expect to lose and um, I think that's where they are now but they also are in a place where they have to win Friday I don't know where this goes if you lose your first Pac-12 South game and you drop to one and three uh, it's in a very difficult place so to say must win for Friday doesn't even come close to what Friday is for this team, for this coaching staff, for this program. Uh, so, so yeah, I think he had to do it as much as I think it was terrible for Max. And we felt, I mean, it's so classy that USC and Max would be able to come out and face people yesterday, 
he handled that better than most of the coaches in the Pac-12 would have. I mean, imagine, you know, other coaches in Los Angeles had they been in that situation and had to face the media yesterday. Wouldn't have handled it anywhere near as classily as uh, as Max Brown handled it. And all you can do is hope for something really good happens uh, for Max uh, in the future because he deserves it. He certainly does, Dan. A um, couple other topics that people have brought up. Um, some people feel, and you're talking about the scapegoat thing, and I, you know, like what I was saying, um, as you lose, there's more pressure. Some people felt that this was really kind of a way that Clay Helton could restart his time clock and maybe say, hey, you know, we struggled because we didn't have the right quarterback, and now we have a redshirt freshman in there. Um, so maybe get your comments on that. And also, putting in the backup quarterback is it can always be a spark. You know, sometimes people just love to see the backup come in. I'm not sure that's the situation here. This could be a time where you put in the backup and it's it's it gets the team a little down. I mean, it's, you feel bad for Max Brown. So maybe get your thoughts on those two topics. Yeah, I don't know how that's going to play out. You know, the 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 sense of man, we really let Max down. This is really a shame. I mean, I think if you'd ask the kids, you know, in the earlier fall practice, they were really excited. Sam brings a special kind of, you know, gosh, you know, that that whole Brett Favre thing. And um, and yet now the reality of, you know, Max, who's been kind of the leader and the organizer and the guy they've all looked up to, and now he's gone. You know, he's lost his position. And, you know, according to, you know, Max's own thinking, probably not coming back. And you think, uh, how will that affect And I don't, I really don't know. I don't know how that affects him. the other part of that is if, if it doesn't change things, maybe it helps, uh, the coaching staff focus on what are the issues? What is, what is wrong with the preparation for a team that keeps making the same kinds of mistakes and keeps shooting itself in the foot and, uh, beating itself in a lot of ways? I mean, let's face it. If USC makes the two catches in the end zone, you know, as hard as they would have been and, you know, or if they, you know, officials, flag Stanford for the two pass interferences or whatever. Um, And USC just plays sound football on those two uh, 56-yard Stanford touchdowns. What's the score of the game? You know, I mean, when you look at it, if you looked at the, say, 140 plays or whatever it was, if you graded each play as a successful play or not a successful play, I would think USC clearly had more successful plays than Stanford did. They just had the big ones that really counted, and USC had the the big mistakes that really counted. But if you take those two fifty-six yard plays away, Stanford averaged they counting those plays. That's one hundred twelve yards on two plays. Stanford averaged six point five yards a play. USC without those big plays averaged five point eight yards a play. So USC, in a lot of ways, didn't have a really unsuccessful effort except for the way the game turned out. I mean, it was like, um, I was talking to T. Martin about this. I said, T, you had a number of really good plays, but not a really good offense. He said, yeah, that's kind of true. And that's the problem. They've got the athletes to have good plays. But, you know, they had good plays on that first uh, series when they ran the ball right at them. And then they stopped running it right at them. And, you know, they had success, but so what? You know, they got three points and that was it. Uh, you know, this is more than just having good plays. Yeah. And good players. It's more than that. It's having a good program, you know, a good, you know, teaching really well where kids really believe in what you're, I mean, for example, you, it's obvious the Stanford kids really believe what they're doing. I don't think you can say that for the USC kids. Right. It's hard right now if you're a USC player to believe in what you're doing. And uh, this is a, a gigantic week in terms of getting the players back, everybody back together. And uh, I think you got to be careful about, you know, uh, as much as they've blown the players up in terms of, you know, very good veteran offensive line, uh, according to, you know, the USC coaches, uh, as we were getting into the season or really explosive wide receivers and running backs. And then, you know, two good quarterbacks and then none of that happens. And one of those good quarterbacks, 
now is no longer the quarterback. And the rest of that, that group on offense hasn't, hasn't performed at all like, uh, you expected them to. I mean, think about this. Juju Smith-Schuster and Zach Banner were essentially first team preseason All-Americans. Hey, where do you think, you know, they are now in terms, you know, after three games? That's tough. Um, so, you know, those are really good questions. And I don't think, you know, until Friday, we even come close to being able to answer them, um, how this is going to turn out. I do think it focuses them a little bit with uh, the switch in, in quarterbacks and, and having having uh, Utah Friday night waiting for them. Yeah. I mean, I think they can go up there and win. But, well, you know, I thought they could go to Stanford and win, too. And maybe they could have. But we all saw how that turned out. Well, I think the the big question comes, you know, okay, you switch quarterbacks, that's one thing. But will the offensive, you know, scheme change? And so we had, so it's, we had some interesting thoughts on that. So Jim, well, I'll read you what Jim in Canyon Country wrote in. He said, USC offensively is 93 out of 128 FBS teams in yards per rush. They're 109th in yards per pass attempt. And in most revealing, they're 123rd of 128 in yards per pass completed. So it's not, like you said, like there's some good plays, but it's not a good offense. And some people want to know, and I, well, I just was watching the replay of the game, the first series, the first couple of series, USC's in the huddle. I mean, not the huddle, uh, under center, two tight ends, and they were running the ball at will. Then they kind of got away from it. Um, but if you're going to go to Sam Darnold, you don't really want to go under center. You want to be more of a, a spread guy. So do you think the offensive scheme will change? And some people are even writing in Dan saying that, Hey, why don't you bring in Art Bryles as a offensive, uh, you know, analyst? He could come in and help things out. So people kind of want to know, is this the only thing that's happening is that you're putting in Sam Darnold or is something else going to change too? Well, I mean, I don't think we want to, you know, give away. I mean, it has to change. It will change. Um, will it change enough? And, if you change it on paper, if you change it in the playbook, so what if you can't execute it on the field? You know, I mean, uh, let's say uh, uh, Sam gets all the protections right, you know, just the way Max would have, gets them all right. What if the offensive linemen don't get them right? Like they've obviously not gotten them right. Now, one of the issues is you start, you know, looking at those statistics and you say, okay, those are terrible statistics. But which other team in America has played Alabama and Stanford in two of the first three games? And you say, well, nobody even close. Uh, a couple of other teams have hit, have started out with tough schedules. Oklahoma, uh, they're one and two. Uh, Notre Dame, they're one and two. So, uh, I think you need a little more time to see, you need this week and, uh, to see you know, where the numbers really should be. But it's almost, especially after that Alabama game, it's almost unfair. I mean, obviously they had no idea how to get ready for Alabama. We noticed it, the two weeks of of practice for Alabama. You know, this is a team that, I don't care what anybody says, they had a good spring. They had a great summer. Uh, they conditioned, they ran, they went 11 on 11 in player run practices. They went all out. They threw the ball all over the place. They threw it to the tight ends. They were sure of themselves. Uh, they did that a little bit the first couple of weeks in practice when they were competing and they weren't, you know, as they said, no depth chart. And then they started getting ready for the Alabama game and they put in the tweaks to the playbook and they had the depth chart set. And at that point, Everything slowed down. They looked like an NFL team. You know, this is how you coach an NFL team when you got a bunch of 30-year veterans. These guys, you know, aren't 30-year veterans. They didn't handle it well at all. The practices went back to looking more like uh, they did with Lane and, and Sark when they got into the season. And you could even see with Lane and Sark, with the numbers down uh, with the NCAA sanctions, you could almost say, well, I don't like the way this is going. This makes it really tough to get up to game tempo when you get into games, especially against good teams. But now there's not that same excuse. And yet 
you saw them kind of going, uh, you know, practices were more walkthroughs and weren't as competitive, you know, and we still don't see the ones going against the ones. We see ones against twos. Uh, but, uh, and they're doing more of that uh, last week and this week. So, you know, they're, they're moving it in the right direction. But, but coaching a college football team is not the same as, you know, getting an NFL team ready for, and I was listening to coming home. Sunday, I get to listen to back-to-back 49ers game and the Rams game, and you realize when you hear these guys calling these games how infatuated the NFL is with, ooh, that's a really good play call. Wow, that design of that play, that was cool. Okay, that's what the NFL is, but that's not where college football is. It's not into cool play calls, and as far as the NFL was there a touchdown scored Sunday? You know, I'm hearing these guys at the Rams game. I'm hearing them talk about the really cool looking plays. Well, maybe it was easy to do because there were so few of them, but, uh, that's not what you want to be doing in college football. You want to have a system. You want to have a culture. You want to have guys that believe in it, that execute it every time they, you know, and when they didn't like USC beat Stanford at the line of scrimmage much of the time. Uh, but, you know, you finally wear down and they don't, they don't, they just keep blocking you and blocking you and blocking you because they believe in what they're doing and they don't go away from it. And, uh, I think that's what you need, you know, at college football, uh, not, you know, cool looking plays that you think might work. Um, I wanted to read a couple of questions that we had or like comments on the quarterback situation, Dan, and get your thoughts. And then we'll jump into some of the other questions. Um, Steve, the class of 1991 said he's, he wanted to hear your opinion on the quarterback change. Given the many issues the offensive line has, the questionable play calling from a rookie offensive coordinator and lack of overall discipline on the team, the QB change looks like a panic move from a rookie head coach rather than a coach deciding that a quarterback was the reason for the lack of offensive production against the number one and number seven teams in the nation. So that was from Steve. And then Dimitri from Athens, Greece. So this is a long way. Cool. I'm glad Dimitri oh. wrote in. He said, Peristyle team, I saw Coach Helton tell us how Max, how great Max Brown was, and it's not his fault that they are one and two and made the change to create a spark for the offense. Wouldn't it have been more effective to light a fire under the ass of the offensive coordinator and offensive line coach, considering our problem wasn't a quarterback problem? Do you guys feel this is right and an effective move, or is it just – a Band-Aid on a gaping wound. So those are the kind of well, topics that are out there. Dan. Yeah, well, they had to make a change. I don't think there's any question, even if you're playing one and seven. And getting embarrassed, you still got to make a change. And it's much easier to change the quarterbacks, especially when you've had a situation where you've had the two of them, you know, close together. I mean, is it a vote of no confidence that they couldn't change the offensive line quickly enough? And maybe, they, you know, you can't change the – offensive coordinator and O-line coach, uh, at the, you know, at this point. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think it's easier to make this change, and you had to make a change. Uh, therefore, you make the change you can make. You know, it's uh, in baseball, they fire the managers. I mean, you know, and, and most of the time in baseball, you know, it's the players that ought to be fired, and yet they fire the manager in football. It comes down on the quarterback, and, uh, you know, it's, is it right? It might be the only thing you, if, if you have to make a change, it may be the only change you think you can make at this point in time. I mean, they, uh, the depth that they thought I think they had on the offensive line doesn't seem to be there. Uh, I mean, obviously losing Toa, you know, gives you that, that situation and, um, and the situations with, uh, Chuma and EJ Price and maybe guys you thought had a chance to, to really, uh, you know, pick things up, uh, don't seem to have done that. So I think it's one of those, well, we have to make a change. This is the change we're going to make. Uh, people who thought, you know, this is something that Clay would cynically do or do it because you got to change the subject, I don't know that that was the case. He looked like he was really hurt. I think he really, he knows it better than we do, um, that Max Brown doesn't deserve this. He knows that. Uh, but, you know, People can say it's a panic move. You know, was it a panic move by Nick Saban to change quarterbacks? You know, at the start, you know, start of the game against USC, they didn't look like they knew 
who they wanted or why they wanted them in there. Uh, the whole run-up, you know, didn't turn out the way Nick said it was going to turn out, and he scrambled, but they won big. So it's obviously not a panic move. He's a genius. Uh, so that's why when Lane sa- or when Clay says it's, you know, faith, family, and football, uh, it really isn't. It's football first. You know, you can talk about, you know, faith and family and live it and, and believe it, and it's really important. But if you're a head football coach at USC, football has to come first. And you can, you can really do a great job with the other parts of that if you really, if you win football games. But if you don't win football games, um, the rest of it doesn't mean anything to anybody but, you know, you and your family. Uh, and you gotta, you know, take care of the USC football family. And, um, so is it a, I don't think it's a panic move unless, you know, every coach that does this, it's a panic move and nobody's ever going to say Nick Saban made a panic move. Uh, so, uh, you know, it is what it is. They had to make a change. It's the easy change to make, even if it's not the fair, uh, the fair way to go. This is what you do. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get into some of these questions, Dan. There's some Stanford stuff and some other stuff. Um, we don't really get to talk about the Stanford game because it's just been so much other stuff. But Mark and Laquinta said, "Do I recall correctly that Viani uh, Talmavau had several procedure penalties during last year's matchup with Stanford, and wasn't there complaints of signal interference then? If so, uh, USC should know better. Definitely." Uh, definition of insanity is repeating the same behavior and expecting a different result. You know, I don't remember that as, as much. I, I vaguely remember a little bit of that, but that's a good point, and that may be where the continuity from one staff to the next and having that kind of institutional memory gets lost, you know, when you are constantly changing staffs and changing, you know, five line coaches in five years. I mean, you know, Maybe the word didn't get down to, you know, the Callaway. I don't know what went on in the O-line meeting room, for example, and did they talk about it? And, uh, you know, is it something, I mean, I think it happened to Stanford, as I recall, at Utah a few years back when Utah was always accused of doing that and never getting called for it. And I know USC went in there a few years ago and, with the idea that we got to be careful, they're going to be calling stuff out. So I don't know if Stanford said, what the hell? Utah does it. They don't get called. Everybody thinks they're really smart. We're going to do it too. It's the Pac-12. They won't call it on us. Uh, but then USC has to be smarter than that. And honest to gosh, I've raised his name a couple of times. I think in that situation, if it happens the first time, you find out. They're calling K- our cadence. So they're calling signals out during our cadence. Is that correct? And the offensive lineman, as they were saying to us afterwards, yes, that's what's happening. Then you go on the field and you say, Mr. Referee, you, you say, you play the part of Nick Saban and you ask yourself, what would Nick Saban do right now if that happened to him in a game? And you go on the field and you say, look, if you don't call it the next time that happens, we get a false start and they're calling that out and you don't call the penalty on them, you will be embarrassed on national TV because I'm going to throw a fit. Well, you know, I don't need my athletic director down here. I'm going to throw a fit because you guys are terrible Pac-12 officials, and the whole world knows it, and I'm going to make a case about it. And if you call one more penalty, one more false start, when they're calling out during our cadence, you will find bad it is to be a Pac-12 referee in this league. Do you Have you got me? I think you have to do that. Yeah. You can't say, oh, wait, we'll wait till halftime, go to a, a silent count, say that's good coaching after we've gotten seven penalties. That's not good enough for USC. You know, or ask, what would John McKay do? Or what would anybody do if the other team is calling out cadences completely illegally while your quarterback is you know is calling the cadence yeah. can't do that now you, you'd like your players to be a little smarter than that but you, you got to deal with the reality so um uh you know it was a fail all the way around it would seem you know and stanford got away with it yeah. didn't get a penalty stopped a couple of drives 
good deal for Stanford. They're smart. Well, let's uh, let's move on to John. We got a few more questions we want to get to Dan before we let you go. I know we're going to see you out there at practice later, but uh, is there someone on staff who reviews each game from a coaching performance point of view? For instance. Someone would look at the Stanford game and ask, why did it take six false start penalties before changing the snap count? Why move away from the run game that seemed to be working? Why, quote-unquote, surrender punt in the fourth quarter with time running out? We obviously need someone coaching our coaches. Who does that? Please tell me if it happens each week and not just uh, at the end of the year. From behind enemy lines, John in Alabama. Yeah, John, good questions. I think the name of that person is Lynn Swan. Uh, and I think he's getting a lot of help from a lot of former USC players who have probably been smoking up the, uh, you know, the airwaves to Lynn's, uh, cell phone this week. Uh, I mean, we were talking to him at the end of the game. I mean, it had started before the game was over. Um, and, um, you know, I offered one of them a chance. I said, you know, I'll give your, I'll give my cell phone to Lynn now. He's just a few yards away. He's over there with Max behind the bench. If you want to talk to him directly, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's Lynn. Lynn basically, when they ask him, do you need a JK McKay to be your assistant to look, you know, to watch over football? Lynn said, no, I'm going to watch over football. So, so I think, uh, I think that's your answer. All right. Um, we have uh, Ira in Huntington Beach. He said, uh, so this was a couple of days ago on Dan Patrick's show, Paul Feinbaum came on. And he said Alabama's second string could start for USC. Do you think that's a true statement? He was equating the talent at Alabama and the talent level at USC. Uh, thanks, Ira from Huntington Beach. I mean, I think the big issue there is uh, could Alabama's second-string coaching staff or third-string coaching staff, you know they have three full coaching staffs at Alabama, uh, start for USC, I guess is the bigger question. Uh, if you took the USC players and put them in the Alabama system, I think uh, there wouldn't be as big a discrepancy unless USC chose to keep running an offense that couldn't possibly succeed against the, you know, the talent that Alabama had on the field, the way they ran it. Now, the fact that Alabama came in there 21 pounds a man lighter, you know, on the, in the defensive front would have thought you'd have said, you know, we ought to be able to run the quick stuff right at them and wedge them out. I mean, there are, you know, I talked to some very smart USC, former USC players and said, you get in that situation, you're probably, you know, and you got these unbelievable athletes that are running around the edge and, you know, making Zach Banner chase them and, 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 you know, get him to go one way and then the other and beating him inside. He said, act like you're on the goal line and you're going to wedge it out and you're just going to wedge it and wedge it and wedge it until they take out some of those small guys that, um, with all that speed and athleticism, because I'm telling you, the guy that Zach Banner couldn't block who kept running around him is Zach, you know, was kind of foot to foot with Vianney and they just started leaning on people. They're going to get some movement. But of course, USC didn't try to do that. They tried to, you know, get to the outside. They tried to get, you know, seams uh, with wide splits, which allowed the Alabama guys to run through. So no, is there, I mean, uh, there's someone in the country who evaluates, uh, talent and he said one of the reasons is there's almost been a hundred percent correlation with his system uh evaluating recruited talent on teams in the national championship and he said and what he does is he looks at the number of four and five star players on a roster compared to the number of two and three star players on a roster and going into this season the number one team in the country was Alabama. They had the more, the highest ratio of four and five stars to two and three stars. The two teams tied for second in the nation with four and five stars compared to two and three stars were Ohio State, as you would expect, and USC. Dead even. So some people, you could say, well, USC didn't quite have as many uh, full roster, so it's easier for their four and five stars to have a higher ratio. But USC's in the ballpark. Talent-wise, now, how different are you after three and four years in Alabama's system compared to three and four years in what has been USC's system? I mean, I think, you know, for Feinbaum to say that 
it shows you a lot of what the media, they just don't get it. They don't get understand what they're looking at or what they're seeing. Uh, uh, in terms of talent, there's not that much of a differential. In terms of football players, in terms of uh, productive, you know, athletes in the game, unbelievable difference. But just talent, not that big a difference. But, you know, talent, what, so what's talent? Yeah. All it is is potential. But if you haven't developed it over, you know, three and four years, that's all it is. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Un, uh, unrealized potential. All right. Got a couple yep. more. Matt from Orange County. You mentioned this, uh, the splits. He says, uh, on a lot of the negative offensive plays, Stanford and Alabama defenders beat USC blockers across their face. It appears to me that the splits are the problem. It's obvious that we have bigger and faster players than most, but not necessarily quicker, allowing smaller opponents uh, and quicker opponents to beat the blockers. Uh, why not put our guys in a better position to succeed and narrow up the formations? Well, that's not the way these guys see it. And that's not the way, you know, Sark saw it, not the way Lane saw it. And it's not the trendy way to go. So they're not going that way, uh, unfortunately. You know, you're uh, if you want to be, you know, like Alabama, you want to be like Stanford, maybe you ought to try <laughs> You know, as much as we don't like to hear that and don't like to see that, maybe there are some ways it wouldn't be a bad thing to be like Stanford and like Alabama. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, and I think some of it is not just the, the physical where they just beat them, uh, because of the, you know, they're quicker and because of the, you know, the seams or the, you know, the splits, but it's a matter of USC guys not always making the correct adjustment, not always making the correct decision who do i block uh who which one of us blocks which one and that probably tells you again uh you know do they have too much offense in when you make this many mistakes it usually tells you we're trying to do things these guys don't know how to do and can't do that you got to have an offense that's so basic that these guys can you know run it in their sleep which is what it looks like you know even though the school people were a little shaky to some extent for alabama but look at Alabama and Stanford. It looks like the rest of their offenses can run those things in their sleep. They are so, you know, and they that gets them to a place where, yeah, Stanford, do they beat the count? Yeah, you're darn right. Every time they, they are so sure what they're doing, and they get away with it. Uh, USC's kids look like they're trying to, okay, now who am I supposed to get on this play? What am I supposed to do? Um, and there's that. You know, uncertainty, the kind of things you saw on defense last year, this year, you know, you're seeing it still on offense where you're just not sure who am I supposed to, you know, who am I responsible for? And how does this play exactly work? And, you know, with the zone and, and you don't have that man on man kind of responsibility. So, yeah, uh, uh, but <laughs> you talk to them about the splits and they will tell you, no, no, those wider splits give us more room. For, you know, seems to to get through, and yet you watch that zone, that outside zone, and uh, more often than not, the person that's getting through that seam is not wearing a USC jersey. Yeah. This question had, uh, big, I mean, we had so many, and I had to just kind of narrow a few down, but there was, usually there's like a good line or a good reason I wanted to, um, you know, pose the, the full question to you, and JYP had a good one. He said, zero guts in the offense. Could it be that Helton and Martin are confusing fundamentals with no risk? It seems like the offensive staffs are just calling plays because of quote-unquote techniques are supposed to work rather than engaging in the dynamics of the game, thereby expanding play options depending on the atmosphere of the game. What I saw, and this was my favorite line, was just a lifeless sequence of plays on the offense. JYP. Yeah, I mean, what I call it, and this is, you know, I had, when I started as a high school coach, and I remember having battles with our head coach and saying, we've got too many plays in. You'd look at the weekly, you know, and I ended up, you know, the first varsity assistant, and I said, look, we can't even run all these plays once in practice. How the hell do you think we can run? we got formations and plays, and we, we, there's nothing we can do to get these right. 
but it was like you just kept in, you didn't take any out, and you get into a game and you didn't have enough control of exactly what you had to do to adjust, and you ended up grab bagging, which means you, you know, you grab the play out of the bag, and then you grabbed another play out of the bag, and you hope that one worked. And if that didn't work, you grab another play out of the bag. You can't grab bag on offense and, and be successful. You just can't. You've really got to know. And, and you can say, well, look, they know we're going to do this and this will be hard. That's what it was, was interesting to hear David Shaw talk about how Stanford knew that USC knew, except for those two trick plays at Stanford, what they were going to do. And they asked their offensive line to just keep extending uh, into the play. And even though USC knew what there was coming, that they expected those guys to block it and to block it with, you know, extending their head and extending their body into the, into the hole and just keep, you know, going after it and going after it and going after it. You don't see that with USC. You see them going away from something that you think, well, that looks pretty good. And then they go to something else. And is there a belief system that this is who we are and this is how we do things? I mean, it's kind of sad that we know who Alabama is and how they do things. We know who Stanford is and how they do things Friday night. We know who Utah is and how they do things. We don't have a clue who USC is and how they do things. That's pretty sad when you think about it. I mean, (laughs) because I don't think they do. No. One last one for you, Dan. Terrence uh, in High Point, North Carolina, said, Hey, Ryan, I'm an alumni of USC, class of 1994. I've been watching USC football since I was 10. That was in 81 when we still had Marcus Allen. I've never seen USC USC play this bad on both sides of the ball. Uh, the mistakes make no sense. Blown assignments, false starts, etc. Stanford made USC look like a high school team. I was livid Saturday. As much as I like Clay Helton as a person, I believe the athletic department needs to clean house on the coaching staff and possibly keep Clancy as a defensive coordinator. We've got to fix this. I'm embarrassed by the way we are playing, especially on national television. We are the laughing stock of Power 5 football. Um, so a little upset fan there, Terrence in North Carolina. Okay, but uh, you haven't talked to the people in Norman, Oklahoma, or South Bend, Indiana. We got a we got a few people that are that'll go, uh, or even after just one game, Florida State. What do you think it's like in Tallahassee this week after uh, what happened to them at Louisville? But uh, I will say this: uh, you know, USC has to know who they are and how they get there. And Marcus Allen knew. I mean, Marcus Allen knows. Marcus Allen, you know, believes in the kind of football that USC always played and always should play and always should be able to play. But that's hard to do. You can't do it by drawing up a play on a napkin, you know, on a bar somewhere. And I'm not talking about current staff. (laughs) But uh, uh, that's not the way to get to be. USC, uh, a USC football team. And so you've had years and years of people without a clue. I mean, you're in High Point, North Carolina. You probably have a far better idea about how USC football should look than a lot of the people who've been paid millions of dollars to uh, make that happen. And, and that's sad. I mean, is it, you know, as badly as the NCAA, you know, wounded, damaged, did what they did, you know, dishonorably, dishonestly to the USC program. Uh, USC self-inflicted wounds coming out of it are at least as bad. And, uh, you know, you, you have to have somebody with vision and toughness. This is going to be a tough job to get this back to where it has to be. And um, talent alone is is kind of meaningless at this point, as, as USC is proving game after game. But I will say one thing. You said Stanford made USC look like a high school program. I wouldn't give Stanford the credit. I would say that credit goes to USC. It, they made themselves look like a high school program. And you can't allow that to happen in your program. You've got to say, you know, we're better than this. And this is how we, you know, we get to be not looking like a high school program 
And we, you know, is there enough time? Is there enough ability to do it in this kind of a week? Man, yeah, you know, we say this a lot. Stay tuned. Yeah. Who the heck knows? <laughs> well, Dan, great stuff. We, uh, I don't know if this was a, considered an emergency, whatever. We had to do a podcast and we got the practice again. Uh, this is Tuesday, Tuesday afternoon, so I'll see you out there on the practice field. Wait, but it's Tuesday. Yeah, it's an emergency. It's an emergency. <laughs> <laughs> Every we, day. Well, we don't even get to talk much about the Stanford game. <laughs> it's an emergency around yeah. here. Yeah, when USC loses so the Stanford three times say, in a row. Stay tuned. Yeah, you got to stay tuned. I I hear the sirens in the distance. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that's Dan Weber. Uh, check him out on uscfootball.com. We put up a ton of stuff from yesterday's practice with all this news was breaking. You can hear from Sam Darnold, Max Brown, from Dan, from Keeley, for everybody, uh, you know, everything. There's tons of, tons of stuff going up on uscfootball.com. We'll be back out there today getting more reaction from the big news coming out of USC. But for Dan Weber, this is Ryan Abraham. Hope you guys enjoyed the show, and we will talk to you next time. Most people know that buying or selling real estate is no small undertaking. Understanding the market value of your home, pricing, advertising, closing, and perhaps even selling personal property along the way are all examples of the real estate journey. And Michael Moline Real Estate has the experience to help make that journey an enjoyable one. Southern California real estate inventories are at historic lows, so there is no better time than now to sell your residential property. Whether you're moving into a bigger home or downsizing, personal property is often a component of the real estate estate transaction. Michael Moline Real Estate has industry expertise to help you with both your real property and your personal property as you get ready to transition. Michael Moline Real Estate specializes in properties located on the west side of Los Angeles and the southern San Fernando Valley communities. Allow Michael Moline Real Estate to give you a free comparative market analysis and home valuation so you know how much your home is worth today. Contact Michael Moline at michaelmolinerealestate.com. That's Michael, M-O-L-I-N-E, realestate.com. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. Don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your smartphone or tablet for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store.